0: In this environment, it's almost like going back to old school investment um, principles. That you you can't just find a stock that you think um, you know th- this has a good future prospects. It doesn't have any earnings at the moment, and, and it ha- doesn't even have any revenue. But it's got this good idea, and it's got and it's investing in building out this idea, and therefore we'll back it. That was like really. I actually, I, I always found it really hard to deal with a, a, a market where the cost of capital was really cheap because valuations didn't really work. You're always forced to pay too much money for, uh, for, for a share. So I actually really enjoy this market because there are so many more, so much more opportunities. The share prices doesn't move, move as much, but intrinsic value will still grow if you've got a business that you're paying a reasonable price for and it's still generating cash, whether it pays that out as a divi, whether it reinvests back in the business, um, you know, you can set yourself up for good long-term returns in this type of market by doing your homework and, and building up a portfolio of, of
1: good stocks at good prices. Hello, hello and a warm welcome to What's Not Priced In the best investing news show in Australia, if not the world, dare I say it. Uh, Greg, welcome back. Good to have you. G'day, Carol. Is that a self-proclaimed title, is it? It's a, anonymous sources have told me. Fair enough. Well, uh, look, I just wanted to introduce the show. I think uh, we we're having a nice discussion off camera on chat before that this show always tries to ask the most important question in investing, which is not are rates going up or down. It's asking what is the market pricing in and what the market isn't pricing in. And uh, we'll, we'll get to all of that later today. I think we'll talk about uh, the RBA's latest updates. And Michelle Bullock obviously made a speech that um, I probably made more of than you did. And we'll talk about that later. Uh, the market didn't really react that much. But there was an interesting thing that Michelle Bullock said about demand. And I think you've got some thoughts on that as well uh so maybe actually we'll, we'll start with that uh did you actually get to catch uh, michelle bullock's speech on wednesday uh
0: no i didn't i didn't really dive into the speech i, I read a few articles on it yeah. um but
1: unlike you i think you watched it a couple of times didn't you mate <laughs> yeah well i read it last night and then i watched it uh watched it this morning so i i yeah, consumed it in different ways but it was it was an interesting speech uh, i do think she's got a nice way of communicating and uh she did sort of address something that we've talked about throughout uh, maybe the last month or or so. And in one of the episodes, she did sort of say raising interest rates would be a dumb decision because it doesn't necessarily impact uh, rent or housing or electricity. And in this speech, she actually did uh, tackle that head on and she said, yes, uh, monetary policy is a very blunt instrument. We can only really raise rates and rates really only influence aggregate demand. So if there are issues with supply like housing or rents or electricity, they can't really do much about it. But she did say uh, she thinks supply isn't really an issue that much in Australia anymore for inflation. And she made the big claim that right now it's uh, domestic driven demand. And she made the case uh, with like some interesting charts that In Australia, its aggregate demand is sort of outpacing supply, and that's what she's worried about. And she then said the battle to bring inflation down from where it is now to below the inflation target is going to be a long one. Uh, But, yeah, I thought that was interesting because she almost directly referenced uh, our podcast. I'm not sure whether she watched it or not, but she definitely did address it. Um, I could safely say she probably hasn't (laughs) seen it.
0: Um, But, look, I mean, I, I... you know, I think it's important to notice what central bankers are saying. And and in my view, what she's really trying to say to the market is, uh, you know, we are still focused on containing inflation. Yes, it's a blunt instrument, but we will use a blunt instrument mm-hmm. if we have to. Um, but I thought it was interesting that she sort of made that point about <clears throat> demand and supply and that, um, in effect, that monetary policy still has uh, a job to do on the demand side. There was a really interesting article that Robert Gottliebsman wrote in the Australian this week um, that talks about the issues from uh, a, a non-academic perspective. And I think the problem with central bankers is they come through the world of central banking mm-hmm. and they don't necessarily live in the world that uh, a lot of other people live in. So just, I'm just going to read a bit from this article because I think it all puts it into perspective. And it starts off with, around 30% of Australians are being persecuted mercilessly in the drive to squeeze the economy to beat inflation. Most of the 70% majority of the population are are either prospering or not being severely impacted. In combination with rampant state and federal government spending, the prosperity of this 70% intensifies the required attack on the 30% minority to beat inflation. Unless we wake up to what we are doing to our nation, the sharp divisions created in society will move from political issues to the fundamental structure. The inevitable turmoil will create scars that will rank with the two world wars and the depression, and the long-term damage created by the attack by the majority on the minority will be made worse because victims are dominated by people in the 25 to 30 year 35-year-old age bracket they will never forget the artificially imposed cost of living crisis that was imposed on them. We need to recognise first that the Reserve Bank interest rate increases are a very blunt instrument in dealing with government-boosted inflation. It concentrates the burden on a small group. Those forced into crisis are not responsible for that crisis, and there is little they can do to solve this crisis except continuing to tighten their belts. Some move below the poverty line. This has little effect on inflation and the imbalance of supply and demand, they are not lifting prices, and then he, he wrote that in conjunction with uh, a guy called John Dalson, who's uh, in in the building industry, former ANZ uh, bank executive, and he said and he writes John Dalson knows most aspects of the building industry and sees that at the core of the rent and the home purchase crisis is the fact that state and local governments add about forty percent to the cost of each dwelling in most Australian capital cities, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne. Taxes like stamp duty are a big contributor, but so are the massive local and state government bureaucracies who devote their lives to delaying permits and approvals and adding costly building regulations with very little regard to costs. So when I read that, I um, I went and had a look at the Australian Bureau of Statistics data who have recently put out um, information on the amount of public uh, service employees that we have and their average uh, wage and salaries. Mm-hmm. And I no- noticed that in Australia, we have 2.4 million government employees. So nearly 10% of the population are employed by government, uh, federal, state mm-hmm. or local government. 1.87 million of those are state government employees. And the average wage for each of these employees, the f- federal average wage is $97,000. State average wage is $88,500, and for local government, the average wage is $73,000. So we are paying significant amounts of money. And if you look at it from a very broad perspective, uh, government does not necessarily add any productive capacity to the economy. There are obviously, you know, there's there's a necessary element to government where you need to make sure things are running smoothly, rules are adhered to, all those sorts of things. But there becomes a a a, a, a time when it just becomes bureaucracy and bureaucracy adds more costs. And that is the whole point of this article and the whole point of what I was talking about. The RBA can raise rates and raise rates and raise rates but the pain is being felt on a small amount of the population that have a very limited ability to impact mm-hmm. on inflation or or at the end of the day demand if you're getting paid a, a, a you know a big chunk of money for contributing not, nothing to the economy then that's inflationary mm-hmm. and the biggest employer at the moment in in as far as i can see is the government, so that's that's where the problem lies, and I think that's what should be talked about more. Um, and you know, I think Bullock's probably talked around that issue a little bit, um, but at the end of the day, she's just telling the market, "Hey, we're still concerned about inflation. We are um, probably have a tightening bias." The market fell a little bit this morning, probably on the back of those comments. Um, So it really doesn't change too much to what we've been talking about, the higher for longer mantra, which has been in effect for some time. I guess the difference in Australia is because we we have probably more of an inflation problem. And there was a report, I think, from The Economist last week saying that Australia had the highest levels of inflation for any developed economy. So we are getting that entrenched inflation, which is to do with an unproductive economy. It's not to do with so much money in the economy that, you know, the private sector is spending too much. I think it's too much going through the public sector that's creating those inefficiencies. Um, So at the end of the day, uh, the US market, I think, is starting to price in a peak in interest rates and maybe they're starting to price in uh, lower rates next year. Whereas in Australia, I think the Reserve Bank needs to keep pushing back on that. And and that's what uh, last night's speech was, was all about without laboring the point too much.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, briefly before we I think she did um, address that issue. She she admitted that she gets letters from people who are upset that their cost of living is going up. And she did admit that uh, interest rates are impacting some portions of the community much harder than others. But she sort of did say maybe a little bit coldly that her mandate or the Reserve Bank's mandate is to... Uh, address economic issues on the whole in, in aggregate demand. And so I think maybe she was sort of saying that's just the price you have to pay to, to bring She's basically
0: saying, out. we know we've got a blunt instrument, but we'll use it anyway. Yeah,
1: we'll cudgel yep. anyone. Uh, but the, this issue of aggregate demand still sort of exceeding supply does lead on to the next topic, which is uh, retail stocks. I think there's been a lot of AGMs lately, this week and last week. A lot of them have been retail stocks. And I don't know you've sort of have some charts that you wanted to show us. I think there was Accent Group released a, a trading update. That was uh, visa the, the jewelry store. I think Kogan released an update today as well. Uh, I think year to date, its gross sales are, are down, even though it tried to highlight that October was, was a good month. So the retailers, uh, are maybe so, so, this, their sales are, aren't exactly rebounding. But what, what did you make of it? your chance. yeah well, look
0: I think that the, the point that we wanted to make here is that um, the de- demand side isn't isn't strong and you know the, the the governor's saying that you know demand demand is the issue and look I think in in many cases that is you know for your small businesses and services if you can raise rates and just as an anecdotal um, example I I, uh, I get my haircut just around the corner at a, a, a local guy's garage basically he set up his shop and um, he set up his, his hair, hair uh, barbershop in, in the garage. And I go there maybe once every, I don't know, three months, four months, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, and each time, you know, over the past 12 months, I've noticed the prices have just been increasing. And I asked him last time, I said, are you just doing that to see um, where the pain point is? Like because everyone's raising rates, you're raising rates. And he said, the, the reason I'm doing it is he's, he said, I can't expand my business. Mm-hmm. Um, from here, the only way that I can, and he said, I'm getting lots of uh, demand. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm getting, uh, filling up my slots really quickly. So I've, I've clearly got excess demand. So he's trying to deal with that excess demand by raising prices. Yeah. Now, that's not the case for everyone, but I'm, I'm assuming in a lot of small, um, Service-oriented businesses where there is a lot of demand, and don't forget, we're getting you know a hu- huge influx of demand through the immigration policy. That that is a, a strategy that a lot of people are using. Mm-hmm. And then there's obviously just the cost push in, cost push inflation that's coming through, where yeah. people are having to raise prices because you know they got higher costs to deal with. So, um, but at the, but the other um, side of the coin is on the discretionary side. And if we look at um, a couple of the, the share prices of the, these retailers, and this is why. Yeah, my view is always that you know you need to look at um, share prices because share prices don't uh, don't lie and if we look at um, i've just pulled out the big retailers here so the the larger yeah. companies that um, you know may not necessarily be impacted by small company issues so you've got uh harvey norman here that's that's been in a in a downtrend for years it peaked in 2021 um, made this sort of low in june of this year it's bounced back, but then it's rolled over again. I mean, that looks really, really weak to me. That's not telling me that there's strong demand, uh, at all. JB Hi-Fi it's holding up and it's, you know, it's a really, I guess it's a defensive retailer in many ways. It includes the good guys as well. Uh, again, hasn't really sort of dropped hugely. It's sort of, mm-hmm. if I go back a little bit here from the, uh, from the COVID crash, it's rallied and then it's sort of rolled over a little bit, trying to make a recovery. So it hasn't, really done too much over the past two or three years uh accent group the one that you just mentioned um it's really a, a, a shoe uh, fashion retailer um i guess it came out with a was it a profit warning or was it just a, a, a lower than expected growth rate do you know Kirill?
1: uh i think i have it here so then yeah like you said it owns athletes Ford, ARC Boots, uh, Vans, Timberland, Sketches, Platypus. So all those are youth youth, youth shoes. Uh, and it did say that total group owned sales were flat year on year, and, but like-for-like like sales were down 2%. And I think the biggest thing was that um, based on the like-for-like like sales drop-off, the cost of doing business is going to rise as a percentage of sales and that's going to obviously impact their earnings. Yeah. Yeah, so it's sort of like a de facto yeah. de facto
0: downgrade, and the share price is obviously um, sold off from that. So big recovery uh, throughout twenty twenty three after the, this initial sell down, but then it's just not it's not gaining any traction. So clearly these interest rates uh, rises are impacting on the discretionary side. This is Temple and Webster, uh, sort of home decorative, uh, mostly online uh, re- retailer. Um, big big decline here. Is it priced in? Higher rates, uh, recovering a little bit from it, but certainly not a strong recovery. Uh, you just mentioned Levisa. That had a, what was its like for like sales down? I think it was nearly 9%, was it?
1: Uh, I think it was a little bit less, but total sales 6%? the first 20 weeks. Oh, yeah. So total sales were up 17% year on year, but global comparable store sales were down 62
0: yeah, so it's a 62 and, and really that the growth is coming from the store rollout. So it's uh, – and, and investors focus on those like-for-like sales because it's trying to compare apples with apples. And uh, down on a global scale, down 6.2%. That's obviously telling you that, you know, people are tightening their their belts. Uh, Premier Investments, this is obviously a, a quality uh, retailer. Um Certainly, wouldn't say it's 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 in the toilet, but it's not particularly uh, looking particularly strong here either. Uh, Nick Scarley, really well run uh, furniture retailer. Again, um, not the worst looking chart in the world. It looks like it's trying to recover here, but certainly well off its highs from from back in twenty twenty one. Yeah, I think its
1: CEO just sold fifty million worth of shares. Yes, um, exactly.
0: Although you know, it could have been for personal slash family reasons. You know, you never know these things. Um, but you look, I, you know, I,
1: diversification that, that was his yes. reason. Yes,
0: but you know, you, this is this has been such a a, a great retailer uh, for for many years. They generate a huge return on equity, pay a good divi, um, and and have a, had a good acquisition strategy. So, um, wouldn't begrudge anyone from diversifying, um, given that they've you know put a lot of effort into growing that business. So, um, but just moving on to Eagers Automotive, it's a used car retailer. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it's recovered from the big sell-off from the the initial reaction to rising rates. Um, but again, not in any way showing that, you know, demand's running, running too hot. The only retailer that is, uh, I guess, back up near its old highs is uh, Super Retail Group. Um, and it's sort of, I guess, an interesting point here because it's right at these these highs that it's made over the past few years. Whether it can punch above that or whether it's, again, a bit of resistance and, and on its way back down uh, remains to be seen. But I just wanted to show those, um, Kirill, just to give uh listeners and viewers an idea that you know the demand side is the, the interest rate rises are having an impact and it's not necessarily a, a brutal impact across mm-hmm. uh across all industries and all all segments but it is it is an impact uh, nonetheless and look there's there's other areas of the market that you can look at and i'm doing a uh, an in-depth report on a new recommendation uh a mm-hmm. stock in the financial services sector and i went through a whole bunch of financial services stocks and when i say financial services i'm talking about you know non-bank stocks yeah uh that's a sector that has been absolutely decimated over the past you could say 12 to 18 months but some of these mm-hmm. share prices hit their highs back in 2018 that's structural there's a there's structural reasons for that there's um Fees that are coming down, uh, index funds are putting pressure on them to to reduce their fees. Scale uh, requirements mean that you know there, there needs to be consolidation in the industry. But a lot of these stocks are down 50 percent from their from their highs in in twenty twenty two. So even though the stock market itself is only down about five or six percent from its highs back in was it August twenty twenty one, a lot of these sectors below the surface have been really, really badly impacted, and. Again, that's higher interest rates. Higher rates are causing these asset prices to fall down. Higher interest rates are causing competition because people are happy to stick in in cash, and obviously, you can't charge as much money on a cash account as you can on a, a, a share a, a managed fund for a share account. So, there's lots of areas where where this is having an impact. Um, and again, you know, it will continue to have an impact because there's still monetary tightening in the pipeline to come through. So, um, we did say a few months ago that uh, that we should expect to see the impact of that by the end of the year. So, we're fast coming up to the end of the year. So, by the time we uh, we, we have a chat in maybe probably our last episode for the year, which will be mid-December um, – yeah, I can, I can probably say, look, you know, it, it either was right, we might get some data in the next month or so to show that, to, to show that things are slowing uh, more so than what people expect at the moment or uh, it's not going to come and it's going to, you know, continue along its merry way and maybe there are more interest rate rises down the track but certainly, um, you know, I think there are plenty of sectors where it is having an impact for sure. Yeah, definitely.
1: And uh, before we move on, I did sort of want to, make a comment about your your hairdresser and I don't want to be a Michelle Bullock apologist here but it was just funny because she literally said the exact same thing that your hairdresser was saying which was the Reserve Bank team is noticing that especially in the services sectors like hairdressing uh, the demand is so high that it's just easier for those people to just raise prices rather than to find workers because the, the labor market is so tight there's Less spare capacity, in in the economics language, that instead of looking for another hairdresser to work with him, it's just easier for him to raise prices to fill that demand. Uh, so yeah, it's just um, again, no that
0: that is that is a supply issue in my in my view. That's a supply issue. And where, where are we where are we churning out um, hairdressers and and barbers from these days? I don't know. Maybe maybe uh, and look, I'm I'm being a little bit facetious here, but maybe kids. Uh, when I say kids, uni students, um, should maybe not do a psychology degree because every young kid I speak to these days is doing a psychology degree and they should go and get a trade because you'll probably earn a lot more money from uh, from a well-run trade business. Yeah,
1: well, who knows, if, if, if the hairdressers continue to raise prices, that might incentivize the the market to, to you know, encourage more. That's how it should work. Yeah. Exactly.
0: But yeah, uh, but I'm not well, sure kids I, these days I, I, who learn socialism at university will respond to price signals like that. Uh, yes. someone I, else will do it. Yeah. Is, why isn't someone else doing cutting hair? Yeah.
1: I think yeah, I have uh, in my local area blog. There's also a, a person who does um, haircuts straight out from, from the garage. Keeps, keeps the costs low. Uh, exactly. But I think there's also something you mentioned, which was um, with all of the interest rates rising and. They're probably not going to come down for for a while yet. That's putting up the cost of capital. And you sort of uh, sent an email around to just our our company. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. And you made an interesting point that since the cost of capital is going to be quite high for the next few years, uh, it sort of makes investors less complacent. You really have to earn your stripes because you can't just pick a stock that's basically just a concept stock or a story stock that might not have any money or any profitable revenue. So you really have to, uh, you know, dot your whatever it's called, I's and T's and pick stocks that can actually make a profit. So uh, maybe you could just comment on that because I think that was a really interesting discussion that you raised.
0: Yeah, I think what I was getting at there is that um, in this environment, it's almost like going back to old school yep. investment. um principles that you, you can't just find a stock that you think, um, you know, this has a good future prospects. It doesn't have any earnings at the moment and and it doesn't even have any revenue, but it's got this good idea and it's got, and it's investing in building out this idea and therefore we'll back it. That was like really pre, um, pre-COVID and then um, post-COVID in many ways uh, where, you know, 2021 mm-hmm. um, stocks just blew up and any, anyone who had an idea and a concept. And, and at that time, the the main uh, narrative in the market, for, especially for small small stocks without earnings and, and without revenues, was total addressable market. You know, yep. if you had a total addressable market of um, $100 billion, uh, then – uh, this is how we are explaining our story to the market and we are therefore worth 500 million because if we mm-hmm. capture X percent of that total addressable market we'll make this much money. Those sorts of uh, investment ideas uh, worked back then and I just don't think that they, they they work these days and it was just a comment around saying that you have to because we, we had this internal discussion about AI and and mm-hmm. whether AI, can help with analysis and and make things more efficient for us trying to do stock research. And at the end of the day, I just said, look, it can help us, but it's not gonna it's not gonna do valuations for you. It's not going to um, think about how the market thinks and then work out whether that's priced in, which is what we try to do on on this show. And we always talk about, and I don't know how to sort of frame this in a in a clever way, but we always talk about not what I think but what the market is thinking and how the market's pricing that in and is there an opportunity is the market too optimistic is the market too pessimistic and i think that's a really important thing for investors to think about not just how do i see this situation mm-hmm. but how is the market seeing it and is the market right in that in that analysis or is it wrong yeah. and if it's wrong there's an opportunity there and it, and and that was my point with with ai is that it's not going to it's not going to clear the burden from you doing hard hard work in terms of uh, reading as much as you can and understanding as much as you can and doing the valuation work to make sure that you're not paying too much for a business or that you're paying you know a reasonable price for growth prospects or whatever that might be. and when cost of capital is high it that's that's what it does. it makes you do the work you have to earn it um, when the cost of capital is low just money everywhere and and it's a lot easier to well actually i i always found it really hard to deal with a a a market where the cost of capital Mm -hmm. was really cheap because valuations didn't really work Mm -hmm. you're always forced to pay too much money for uh for for a share so i actually really enjoy this market because there are so many more so much more opportunities Mm -hmm. the share prices doesn't move move as much but intrinsic value will still grow if you've got a business that you're paying a reasonable price for and it's still generating cash, whether it pays that out as a divvy, whether it reinvests back in the business, um, you know, you can set yourself up for good long-term returns in this type of market by doing your homework and mm-hmm. and building up a portfolio of, of good stocks at good prices. The, be- the bull market will return at some point, whether that's next year, the year after, who knows, but this is when you do your work to establish build out your portfolio and then reap the rewards down the
1: track. So that's the plan anyway. Yeah. And that was the idea behind that, that comment. Yeah. So you don't think Chad GPT is going to take over the investing industry?
0: Uh, no. <laughs> Maybe down the track. Who knows? I mean, I'm the worst technologist um, or futurist you could yeah. you could imagine. So do not listen to me when it comes to that stuff. I'm very, very plain vanilla Um, if I can't see it immediately, I can't see it at all. Uh, Whereas there's uh, some other people will tell you that this stuff is going to revolutionize the world. And in many ways it will, I get that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think when it comes to stock research, the market will always, uh, the market's like a psychologist. The market will always uh, find your weak spot. It will will keep hammering you until you fix that weak spot. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the evolution of markets over the past couple of hundred years, we have got so much more information, we have got so much more ability to deal with with the information that comes with us and what to do with it, yet it's still dishing out the same lessons to people for making the same mistakes as it did two, three hundred years ago. So I don't think AI changes that. I think AI maybe um, lifts the level that you have to, have to play at and you have mm-hmm. to think about What does AI think and what does the market think AI thinks? You know, all those sorts of things. You have to put that into the equation. But at the end of the day, the market is still driven by humans, human emotion. um, And that's not going to change anytime soon with AI or without it. Yeah.
1: And I think we've probably already had AI play a big role in markets anyway with all of the algo traders and stuff like that. So it's been a part of markets, I think, now for, for years. Absolutely. Uh, that was something I was going to mention, but now it slipped my mind. So then I think now I'd want to talk to you about Origin Energy. We're recording this at the middle of Thursday, and obviously the the vote that was meant to happen on Origin's takeover got delayed. Uh, so, and I think you've you've been following on Origin Energy for years now. So. I think a lot of people are probably thinking, what what the hell is going on? So can you please tell us?
0: Yeah, look, I'm, I'm probably in, in that camp as well. Um, I first recommended Origin back in April 21. I think it was around about $4.75. Um, and then literally a couple of weeks later, it plunged to below $4. And uh, this was the time when companies like I don't know Zip and 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 all and Afterpay and all that were 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 going crazy, and I was stuck in Origin Energy with apparently energy going out of business in a couple of years. But you know that's partly what happens when you're a contrarian slash value investor. You just have to suck it up when you get your timing wrong. Um, But I've followed Origin for for a good couple of years, uh, and you know my view is I'd told subscribers a couple of weeks ago to vote against. The, 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 uh, the takeover bid, I think it undervalues the company. If you look at it purely from a, um, the cash flows that it's generating now and expected to in the next couple of years, the, the valuable assets that it holds, they're you know, effectively irreplaceable assets. The other thing that the, this company is getting on the cheap is uh, the 20% stake in Octopus uh, that Origin owns. And when I first recommended it back in April twenty one. My story led with this strategic investment that it had made in um, Octopus and said, this is effectively a potential jewel in the crown. You're not paying anything for this business. You're not even paying anything for the LNG business at this point. You know, there's some real cheap assets in here. And Octopus has gone on to be a a global growth story that I think is going to be worth in five or 10 years' time, is going to be worth a huge amount of money. And Brookfield are effectively getting it for, you know, Bugger all. So, um, so the, the 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 key shareholders I think realize this and have rejected the the offer. Uh, just today or last night, uh, the bidders came back with another deal. I haven't had the time to look into that entirely, but it looks like they're trying to, I guess, twist people's arms into saying, "Look, hey, take this, and if you don't accept this offer, you're going to be accept you're going to be looking at a nine dollar twenty offer instead." Mm-hmm. But I can't see how I can't see how Origin Energy's board will endorse yeah. that. It, to me, it just looks like a desperate attempt by these essentially private equity guys to to try to get the deal done. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a lot of money on the line for this deal going through, so a lot of personal money on the line for mm-hmm. uh, Origin shareholders, Origin management, Origin board members. I know that um, I think it's Frank Calabria uh, he has, you know, a a big payday if this goes through. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see what the origin board decides to do from here. Um, but my, my view is that, you know, these are really good assets and we shouldn't, you, you shouldn't be selling them to, um, bidders for a, a cheap price. You know, if they want them, they need to pay for them. Um, and they've come out and said they're, bid was a final offer so they can't actually best and final so they can't raise it from here Um, so they might have to walk away and if they walk away does the share price fall all that much or does the market actually realize there's significant strategic value uh, within those assets Um, the only downside for shareholders continuing to own it um, in in this structure is that Origin uh, may have to raise capital to fund a lot of its renewable investment. So at the moment, and don't quote me on these figures, but this is just a rough ballpark. Origin have committed to around about, I think it's five gigawatts of renewable energy investment, whereas um, the the Brookfield guys have committed to two or three times as much. Um and, and in dollar terms, that's like well the, the media's quoted figures of twenty to thirty billion from from Brookfield. But, you know, th- these aren't contractually agreed to amounts they're going to invest. It's easy to come in and say, oh, yeah, we're going to help with Australia's energy transition. But, you know, th- th- these guys aren't doing it to be a good corporate citizen. They're doing it because the government is effectively underwriting their returns by saying, mm-hmm. you build a wind farm and we'll give you a guaranteed um, return on the energy generated from that. Uh, and that's going to translate into higher prices paid for by households and businesses. So we're effectively. Uh, giving away origin at a, t- at a time just before household electricity prices are, are going to, into a structural uh, a structural rise because of this shift towards renewables. And there is no doubt that renewables are a more expensive form of energy generation. And in order to in order to build out the renewables, the government has to underwrite the returns from it, mm-hmm. and those returns will be paid for. Uh, via the taxpayer, via subsidies, and via the households and business sector by higher energy, higher electricity prices. So the, one of the few ways you can hedge that is by owning Origin Energy, and the private equity guys are trying to trying mm-hmm. to take it private. So um, you know, if I'm a shareholder, I don't really care short term, and I am a shareholder through my super fund. Mm-hmm. I also own it, um, bought it for my father's super fund. So you know, th- there's there's a short term you can say, okay, well we're going to be down maybe 10, 15, 20%, but you want to own these assets for longer term. You want to generate the um, – you get income generation from it and, the, and you've also got the optionality of the octopus business, which is in in many ways hidden in that because it's not generating um, – it's got a balance sheet value, but it's not generating income uh, as yet or profits. So those profits aren't contributing to the return on equity profile of the business, so you're not getting – that uplift uh, in terms of the overall valuation. So, um, you know, these guys will try to do their best to get a deal done, uh, but I would be surprised if it get, if it gets done at all.
1: Yeah. And I think, uh, I know you've said that you, you've you been reading Peter Lynch again a few, a few weeks ago. He sort of mentioned in, in his uh, one up on Wall Street that some of the best stocks are the ones that have hidden value in the balance sheet. That's sort of the way that they have to account for that asset greatly underestimates the true worth of that investment or that equity stake. So, Octopus Energy could be one. Absolutely. And look, like.
0: Premier Investments is another example of that. Yeah. It owns uh, 25% of Breville uh, mm-hmm. on its balance sheet. It owns uh, 25% of Maya, which is obviously not quite as valuable. But it holds that um, it holds that value of Breville on its balance sheet at about $330 million. Uh, it's it's only getting the dividends from Breville. I think Breville reinvests 50% and only pays out 50%. Mm. So the earnings that it's getting from Breville isn't 100% of the earnings. And the actual market value of that stake is around 800 and something million, whereas it holds it on the balance sheet for 330 million. So there's, you know, the, you can find those not everywhere, but they are in various spots. Um, the market is pretty good. You know, the market knows this stuff. So the market's pretty good at trying to work out where it is, but often you'll get situations where, especially in panics, and if if there's sell-offs in um, in, in panic situations where everyone prices in this worst-case scenario, and you've done your homework on the on on the valuations and you know where the the value is, if you get a situation where the panic sees that fall below that value for a short short term, you can just buy it, knowing that you know th- these are panic values that are creating the share price. It's not necessarily anything intrinsic to the to the company and that's where you can get the really good uh good good prices which goes back to my point about knowing your values knowing how to how to um knowing how to value a company if you do that and you've got those and i've got a sheet here with with all my stocks in my portfolio i update the values every month the ones that i'm looking at so if if things move to a point where there's good discounts on offer and it's not necessarily company driven. I know I can move that from a hold to a buy, or, mm-hmm. or or whatever it might be, just because you know it gives you confidence knowing where the the real value is, and the market moves around that all the time.
1: Yeah, you can probably automate that uh, process with ChatGTP. You know, you've you've got your valuation. Well, that'd be good actually. Updates. Maybe I should
0: maybe I should get into it a little bit more. It would help me out quite a lot. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, because I think with with the the whole AI thing, I was thinking. Um, it's a question of whether it complements your research or it's a substitute for your research. And I think it's probably a compliment rather than a substitute. You can't really substitute um, insight or creativity. And I think the best Absolutely. investors are probably ones that, are, that see something that other people don't. And I think you were sort of trying to describe that earlier. And that was an interesting quote from uh, Dan Rasmussen. He was um, presenting at the song Hearts and Minds charity event for AFR. And he said that investing is not a game of analysis, it's a game of meta-analysis. It's not what you believe, but what you believe that's different to what the market believes. And I think that's, that's the whole point of, of this podcast as well. I think uh, sometimes maybe me, especially I want to maybe raise topics that are maybe, maybe too popular and that have already been raised. Um, and so you do a good job of saying, look, the, the market's already priced that in or in, investors have already heard that elsewhere. I think most viewers probably have a subscription to the Australian or the Financial Review, or they can just read it elsewhere. So that's what we aim to do.
0: That's a good quote. And another um, thing that Peter Lynch mentioned as well is that uh, investing is is more art than science. So he was he was very much of the view that you know you need to think laterally, uh, and and you can't just sort of go in and. Um, I don't know, look at PEs or, or, or whatever and say, okay, that's a good or a, or a bad buy. There needs to be, there needs to be creativity put into mm-hmm. place. And if you outsource research to a machine, you know, there's no creativity there. So um, you really need to, uh, as you said, with that quote, you know, a really good quote, you need to think about what the what the market's thinking. You can't mm-hmm. just sort of go in and and not have this idea that the market is a, a living breathing thing that is creating prices one day up and down and you need to work out whether that market is being irrational or being rational and that's the to me that's the real challenge of investing trying to always work that work that question out yeah
1: and I think the more I um, study investing or I study the best investors the more that whole sentiment uh, of that quote I just read pops up I think Howard Marks famously said it's better to be uh, non-consensus and right rather than be consensus and right um the best gains are in that quadrant where you're non-consensus and right obviously you don't want to be non-consensus and wrong but uh you really want to if you want outsized outsize performance that's what you aim for i think we're nearly out of time but i wanted to do a brief quick fire round and just get your brief thoughts on the trending topics and whether you think investors should just forget about it or not obviously um this week was dominated by uh open ai i'm not sure if you followed it um i'm not really (laughs) i'm a a big i tend not to follow uh (laughs) main headlines Yep. when main headlines uh... it's boring yeah i'm a big uh, fan of twitter so i was on twitter a lot and that was that was the only story that was dominating um that twitter whether sam altman is going to be rejoining open ai or not so I've got two images for you and I'm going to say, is this a big deal or a molehill? So all of the open AI shenanigans, is this a mountain or is this a molehill? So which one do you think it is? Well,
0: I'm not actually sure how to interpret your, uh, your, your your things, whether it's a mountain or a molehill, but I would just say it's uh, it's not worth anyone's time to, yeah. to, so it's not to big deal, think it's about it too much. Yeah, all right. So, so it's not a big making, deal. It's a molehill. Making
1: a mountain out of a molehill. Yeah. That's, yeah. So I could say both. And I think the other one I wanted to maybe raise is obviously NVIDIA. We probably, our first ever episode was it, mentioned NVIDIA. Uh, I think I, the, the very first episode coincided with its massive run-up in price. Uh, it sort of released its earnings and everyone was surprised at how uh, massively it beat expectations. Uh, obviously, the stock this time around didn't really react as much. It was pretty much flat, uh, so the market pretty much already expects outsized performance. So, is this something? Is that a big deal that this uh, Nvidia's in earnings big this quarter? Well,
0: was a big hit? deal because the, the the earnings growth was massive, yeah. but the market had already priced it in, yeah. so it was it was no big deal from the, from the market. But just to reiterate, and I wrote about this uh, in our. Free daily email, Fat Tail Daily yeah. Fat Tail Daily. So if you haven't um if you're not signed up to that, it's a free daily email we send out once a day. Um I guess it's just fattaildaly.com dot AU. Um, and you can put your email address in there and get that once a day. But I just I just write a brief intro each day and and yesterday I mentioned that, you know, it is a hugely profitable yep. company. I mean, 80% return on equity and is reinvesting most of that money. I mean, the mm-hmm. compounding on that is, is huge. So as much as I look at these companies and I say, well, I just, you know, that's not my type of investment because they are priced huge. Like they're, you know, I think it was on 50 times earnings or something like mm-hmm. that, but in many ways it's, this is not dot com bubble era. Like this mm-hmm. is the risk the market has at the moment is if these guys Miss their growth estimates. They're still going to make a huge amount of money. They're still going to make huge cash flows. They've all got net cash on the balance sheet. They don't have any debt. They're probably making tons of money from higher interest rates because they've got so much, um, so much cash on the balance sheet. But it's really the growth rates that are that might slip them up because the market is so expectant of you know ongoing strong growth. And to be honest, Nvidia didn't really disappoint. It, it did guide towards another strong quarter next quarter. Um, but again, the, because the market had already factored a lot of that in, the share price didn't move too much. But just to just to be clear, that these aren't bubble companies. They're mm-hmm. genuinely, um, and they've got economic moats. You just can't compete those earnings away very quickly. Um, so Apple, Microsoft, Nvidia—you know—they're the, probably the big three. Even Google and Amazon, to a lesser extent, you just—they're just huge network companies that people use because everyone else uses and because of that they've they've just got entrenched uh uh, business that competition can't compete away those those Mm -hmm. big returns so what's going to slow them down is is the slowing growth rates and i liken them in this article i liken them to the the big energy companies of last century you know when when your standard oils they they started growing from small bases in the u.s and then when they got when they dominated the US market, Mm -hmm. they started dominating internationally. We're at that point where these tech companies are similar to those oil companies where they've got global domination. And at some point you get to the level where you have to grow at the same rate as the rest of the world because you've already saturated everywhere. I'm not like, I don't follow them close enough to know at what level we're at, but there will come a time where there's growth rates start to hit up against Mm -hmm. the ceiling. And that's when you're going to see a share price reaction. And that's when the dominant narrative will be, Oh, these companies are X growth You know, they're not. They're not going to continue to grow for another ten years at these same rates. They're going to start to more resemble global GDP growth or, or you know, nominal GDP growth, something like that. Um, in the same way that it happened to the to the big oil majors. So um, the big difference with the U.S. companies is once they dominate the huge U.S. market, they go out and, and dominate a global market. So. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what I'm saying about Mountain and Molehill, but uh, it's a it's a big company with a lot of a uh, lot of cash, a lot of um,
1: profitability,
0: and it's probably got a decent growth runway. Let's
1: go with both. <laughs> yeah, and I think also with with such high profitability, it it, it will definitely entice competition. Uh, it probably does have a, a long runtime to develop the yeah. capabilities of Nvidia, but the competition is definitely on its way so it'll be interesting to see whether nvidia's economic mode is sustainable and how strong that is in five ten years time
0: exactly exactly
1: well on that note i think we will end it for this episode uh we will also i think um in the weeks ahead or maybe even next week have a dedicated email address for this podcast so you guys can send your comments or questions to that email address and I'll I'll link it to my account so I'll be able to track what you guys are saying or what you guys are asking. And if we have enough questions, we can go through that at the end of each episode.
0: Sounds good. And just to let everyone know, I did mention that um, I'd have a look at the uh, sentiment indicators for the market. Um, Didn't get to that this week. Uh, We'll get to that in the next couple of weeks just because we're in a seasonally strong part of the market, which means... You know, November and December uh, traditionally the the best months for the market uh, in the year. So we are at overbought levels um, from uh, especially in US US stocks, a little bit less so in Australia. And I think that probably continues for the next couple of weeks at least. Um, so we can have a look at some sentiment indicators just before we head into the Christmas break to see where where things are poised. But overall, my view hasn't changed. I think this is just a, a seasonal bounce from really oversold levels at the end of October. Um, and, and once, once the sort of, um, I I guess everyone trying to get into the market to push their portfolios up to secure those end of year bonuses, which does happen by the way. Um, once that has sort of cleared, I think we sort of go into 2024 with the realization that central banks are remaining tight, um, credit is contracting in the US, the money supply is uh, contracting. The US is going to find it tough and Australia will follow because our interest rate rises started happening a little bit after uh, the US. So nothing really changed from the bigger picture view, but I think shorter term, obviously, you know, just to reiterate, we're in a uh, seasonally strong part of the market and it can continue to sort of, you know, drift higher for the next couple of weeks at least. Great.
1: Well, We'll see you next week. And also, yeah, watch out for for that email address. We'll probably link it down in the description below. But in the meantime, you can leave a a comment or a question in the YouTube comments. And if we get five questions in the YouTube comments for this video, I'll wear a hat for the next episode. Beautiful. (laughs) Nice. All right. See you guys. Thanks for watching. back.